Moto America fans, it's time for another episode of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you may even learn something from this unlikely pair and their special guest. The mic is yours, Paul and Sean. Hey, Moto America fans, this is Paul Carruthers. I'm the communications manager for Moto America, and this is Moto America's weekly podcast, Off Track with Carruthers and Vice. I'm joined, as always, by Sean Vice, who's out in Ohio. Uh, I'm down here in Southern California. We just had a really terrific weekend of racing, large crowds, good weather. I mean, it, was, it, it had it all up there at Laguna Seca. What do you think, Sean? It was fantastic, Paul. It, it took me uh, forever to get home, and maybe that was an, an omen because my flight uh, got canceled night in Monterey and fly back on Tuesday, but I can tell you there are a lot worse places to be than there, that's for sure. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah, it was a good weekend. It was, uh, you know, the, the weather sometimes can be a little unpredictable there, but it was, it was about perfect. I mean, if anything, it was a little too warm, but... Uh, no, it was good. We, we, you know, there was a big crowd. I think, you know, what a difference from a year ago when we were there in October for the last round of our series. And, you know, we were right in the middle of the pandemic and, and no fans were allowed. And it, it just feels like an overblown test day, you know, and it's, yeah. it, it's just so much different there when, you know, the paddock, you can't move around. And I know it's a pain in the butt for some of us who are working there, but it's a good pain in the butt to have when you, when you've got to kind of wait around and, and to move, move through people. So it was uh, it was real good. We had uh, we had the final round of our King of the Baggers series, which was three rounds this year, and probably going to expand a bit next year to two more rounds. I mean, that's a discussion that we need to have. But uh, yeah, we had that, and we had uh, a, a Kyle Wyman won the championship in that on his Harley Davidson. It went down to the wire, and you know the guy shows up with a broken elbow. He had surgery just a few weeks earlier, or maybe it was a month, and. Uh, and, and, you know, he, we're trying to figure out how many points he needs to win the championship and he just goes <laughs> ahead and wins the race. So yeah. he made, he made it easy. I was actually working on a story that's going to go on the website tomorrow, but it was kind of like, you know, never, never tell a racer that he doesn't have to win a race apparently in order to win the championship. Cause he was going to take care of both those. And I mean, he was just dominant. He had, he backed off a little bit, but heck, if he would have kept that pace of, you know, he had a, had over a second after one lap. So I'm not too good in math, but extrapolating that out over eight laps, he would have had an eight, eight second uh, lead at the end if he would have kept it going. So he did back it off a little and he won by a little over four, but uh, still impressive. Yeah. I mean, you are supposed to win going as slowly as you can, you know, um, <laughs> That's right. and it's like, you know, if you, if you look at the way that Jake Gagne wins his races, I think most of those are one, this was an exception because the, obviously it was close, you know, it was just a little over a second in each race over Loris Baz, but I think, um, you know, the, the majority of his races are won in the first two laps because he puts two, three, four seconds on those guys. And just like Kyle, if you put, you know, few, three, four seconds on somebody, if you could just go their speed, you, you end up winning by three or four seconds. So it's really all you need to do. Yeah, it's crazy. That start is so important. I remember Freddie Spencer in, in Grand Prix racing. I mean, that's what he was really good at was that getting good starts and having a good first lap. And I mean, you can, you can pretty much bury guys in the first lap if you, if you get it right. Yeah. You know, and it's funny. I remember with Cameron uh, Bobier, he kind of had a turning point in his career. He had this sort of mentality that he wanted to, 
sort of go easy at the start, let everybody sort of figure things out and kind of look where he was and then move to the front. And, you know, finally, I say finally, I mean, he just sort of realized I got to go as fast as hell right at the beginning and and get that lead and not worry about everybody else. And it really made a huge difference for him. I mean, he was winning at the time some of that was going on, but it certainly made him even more dominant. And obviously Jake's got that figured out now that he doesn't have the, you know, the clutch issues that he was having last year, he seems to be able to get a good start and it means everything. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and It just helps those guys build their confidence and it pretty much destroys the confidence of the other guys. Yeah. But it's a win. Absolutely. But yeah. speaking of, speaking of King of the baggers, let's get to our guest today it's funny most people our age and above would if there is any of those it would would know terry vance as, as a champion he's actually won 14 national drag racing championships which is i mean you you know i'd be happy if i won 14 tiddlywinks contests much less 14 <laughs> national drag racing championships but most people today would know him as you know co-owner of vance and hines uh they probably wouldn't know that he was a national champion, like I just said, and they might know that he, you know, he, he formed Vance and Hines and he had racing teams, including incredibly successful AMA Superbike teams. I mean, he ran a Yamaha factory team. He ran a, he ran a Ducati team. He's had riders like Anthony Gobert, John Kosinski, Thomas Stevens, Jamie James. I mean, the list goes on and he's, he's just accomplished so much. And, and on a, on a personal level, I mean, he's been a big influence on my life, both professionally and personally, you know, more than anybody knows. And it, it, it continues right up until, you know, I had dinner with him at Laguna Seca and, and he still gives me advice and still helps me. And it's, we've had a really good relationship and it's one that I've really valued. And let, let's bring Terry into the conversation. Terry, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure, you guys. It's uh, it's nice to uh, listen to you guys talking about Laguna. Laguna is like my favorite, you know, road race event that you can go to. It's just such a great place, and just always a pleasure to go up there. Now I'm not I'm not looking for compliments, but I kind of am. But <laughs> you you were you race in the AMA series in what people refer to as like the good old days because yes. it, it was really good. You 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 were there initially when it wasn't so good, but you were there when it when it was at its very best. And then you also saw it basically go off a cliff. Now I know from talking to you that you, you, you've been to a few of our events now and you are impressed with what, how Mo, what Moto America has been able to do with that series, kind of bringing it from nothing back to where it is. Well, you know, Paul, the funny thing is, is that last year we came kind of on a whim to the bagger program. We did it just for fun because we thought it'd be fun to build a bagger and go up there and mess around with it. And um, we didn't really take it real serious uh, as you could, you know, unfortunately for us, because we finished second, if we had taken a little more serious, we might've done a little bit better, but, but anyway, so, you know, we hadn't been around Motor America much uh, or competed in any other events up to that point, because we had been back in the AMA days and the AMA was a little bit messed up uh, back in the old days, but they got it done, but it was such a popular sport at the time. They really couldn't not be successful because so many people were, coming in the gate. And what happened, uh, as we all know, sadly, is, is that road racing kind of took a little bit of a downturn. And Richard and Wayne got together and said, hey, we're going to fix this in the United States. And I actually thought Richard was a little bit crazy because I thought he was going to spend a lot of money that he'd never get back. And now seeing what's happening with uh, Moto America and seeing how well he's orchestrated the place and organized the leadership team and got the television going and the media going and 
I mean, everything runs just like clockwork, right on time, right on schedule, as professional as it could possibly get. I mean, you guys, it seriously rivals all of the NHRA stuff. So, you know, coming coming out of NHRA and going to flat track for us as a as a organization, as Vance and Hines, you know, we really love NHRA. They're very, very good. And when we got to flat track, we were like, well, we're just going to have to deal with this. But um, when you go back to Motor America now, you're like, whoa, these guys are these guys are serious. And I know you're not looking for compliments, Paul, but I have to tell you, I've seen very few organizations that have made the strides that you guys have and how professional and how well run an event is. And I, I think you've really kind of reestablished road racing in the United States that it hasn't had. So I think the sport itself owes a lot to Wayne and Richard and your guys, Chuck, uh, about uh, putting this together and, and really sticking with it, Paul, because I think if I were the investor like Richard was, it would have been real easy to clip the wings in the middle of that. But he hung tough. I told his wife the, uh, on, on Sunday, uh, I said, I really admire what Richard's done. I, I, I think the fact that he just stuck with it is, is as admirable as the fact that he took on the, the task to begin with. So I think anybody that's road racing today owes, owes Moto America a little bit of gratitude. And I remember distinctly early on, you, I mean, you always, we always talk anyway, but you would call me and ask me like, Hey, how's it going? Are you guys going to make it? And I'm like, yeah, we're going to be fine. Just give it some time, give it some time. And then you even admitted to me this weekend that I might've been right. Yeah, you might've been. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and, and Richard, I, when Richard and I were talking about it the other day, uh, Richard Varner for everybody that's listening, um, uh, you know, I, I really told him how impressed I am with how well uh, you guys have done. And it's really nice, Paul, you guys, I mean, all the way down to the mini bikes. I mean, you got the little mini program at, uh, Road America. And I mean, you guys are doing some wonderful things. And, um, you know, the classes are well organized and structured. People know what's going on and who's who. And, um, you know, the bagger program, it's kind of interesting. I think that they got there and it was kind of a joke to begin with. I mean, everybody was laughing and thinking they were going to leak oil all over the track. And I, I think what ha ended up happening was, is that the racers that were involved in the bagger program looked around and goes, whoa, this is a really good platform. And I actually think that Moto America looked back and said, whoa, this is a really good platform. So it looks like it might be a nice little marriage that might stay together for quite a while. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, Terry. We, we, were, we looked at the whole thing kind of with a bit of a jaundiced eye last year, too, a little bit. I mean, I know all of us, I think, did. We thought it was a cool idea to try out, but we know as well as everybody else. I mean, we've seen Harley's forays into road racing in the past. And they've had some success. The VR 1000 program, of course, the XR 1200s were terrific to watch. But, you know, to take a, a bag or motorcycle that, I mean, I knew somewhat about, but heck, I knew I if I ever got on one, first of all, I might, I, I'm weird about having my feet in front of my, yeah, I, plus I can't turn them around for some reason. They just have such a long U-turn or whatever. So just to see what they did in, in transforming those bikes, getting the hard parts off, off the ground and making them more race prepped. It's this, this year, it seemed like this race at Laguna Seca compared to last, which was, was very cool. It was even more cool this year. There was just so many other go fast parts. The, 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 the lap times were so much faster. I mean, Kyle Wyman was lapping in the top 10 of the Twins Cup guys and could have even qualified for Superbike on that, that bike. So, you know, it, it seems like the future of, the, of that class is going to get even bigger, as, as Paul said, you know, with um, the fact that we're probably going to have more rounds next year. And there's even been, there's talk about we're looking at trying to go to Daytona, which I know is a place that's near and dear to your heart, Terry. So, I mean, it's just, 
it's kind of cool that we've hit on something and however we've hit on it with everybody all in, including Vance and Hines, it's, it's great that we're going to kind of be able to make this thing happen. Um, I, now that you're a part of it and, and gotten involved in it, and I'm sure you guys are going to continue to be a part of it. Is that true? Yeah, I think so, Sean. I, I think the thing that you got to look at is, is that uh, Patricia Fernandez was riding the Saddleman bike. And I mean, she was knocking down lap times that would have won the race when we were back there in September. So the class, That's right. the class has come really far in a very short period of time. Um, the, the, the real challenge now for, I think, for Motor America is to try to figure out what they're going to do with the class moving forward, because if you let it turn into Superbike, it might not be the class that everybody enjoys watching. You know, I mean, it's like you've got to have some rules and regulations to keep it so that guys in the back can actually be competitive and can stay in the hunt without just spending a bank vault, you know. So it's uh, it's it's going to be a little bit of a challenge moving forward. But I think everybody's embracing it. Everybody enjoys it. And you kind of have to, in racing always, Sean, you got to kind of follow the money. And I mean, when you look at baggers um, for Harley Davidson, I mean, you know, it's a $4 billion company and almost a billion dollars of their revenue is just from baggers. So, you know, you, you look at that and you say, not, not just revenue, but bottom line. So when you look at baggers, they're very, very important to the motor company. So Indian is in the same boat. Baggers are going to be a big part of their success or future, future sales. So, and if any other brands come in, I think it's going to be important that um, you know, they look at the class as well, but you know, there's the majority of the, of the, of the guys that are riding bikes today on the street and those companies are bagger riders. So it's only natural that we should have a class. We just, we got to be really careful. We want to keep it really close racing and we want to make sure that it's cost competitive for everybody. We don't want to make it. So you, you know, the guy with the biggest wallet has the only chance we want to make it. So kind of like flat track is where you can have a lower dollar program, but still get to the front. And, I think that's going to be a challenge for uh, Chuck and and the guys at Motor America, but I, I think they're up to the task. I think they'll be able to figure it out. Yeah, and I mean to your point, it, we a few years ago when we talked about having the Twins Cup class, and it started out as being it's a popular, you know, those those two cylinder middleweight bikes or or lightweight bikes, whichever you want to call them, are very popular in club racing. So we thought let's take those club racers and put them on this national scale and showcase their talents a little bit. Well, that that class has become a tuner class, and anybody in that class will tell you if you want to run up up front there, you have to spend some money. And some of them are saying, you know, they're spending up words of what they do for a super sport program. Aprilia has this RS660 now. So the Twins Cup program or class has kind of evolved a little bit, little bit over the last couple of years. So I guess that's a question for, for you is where do you see this going? I mean, to your point, we, we kind of have to keep it under control a little bit. But one of the things I want to ask you is right now it's Indian versus Harley Davidson. It's, it's awesome for America and all that. But we get a lot of fans that always talk about, well, what about the other manufacturers who make baggers? I mean, do you think a foray of some other brands in there, as long as it's balanced somehow would, would help even more? Well, first part uh, on the Twins Cup, I love that class, Sean. I think it's awesome. You know, Hayden Schultz uh, used to work at Vance and Hines out at the race shop in Indianapolis. So I'm always pulling for Hayden, you know, and he qualified on the front row and had a nice little chance to do well there and kind of lost the front end on uh, turn two there going into the second lap. So I felt bad for him, but I think he ended up finishing fifth or sixth. So he, he gave it a valiant ride after that. But but that class is awesome. And, and, and I think that the bagger class might be a little different than that class because I think there's a little more depth as far as the people that are involved. I mean, you've got a direct involvement from Harley. You've got the SNS guys with uh, the Indian guys. And I, I think, you know, the, our, the Vance and Hines programs there, Saddleman's there, uh, you know, a lot of the other guys are there, Fueling's there. 
So there's, there's a lot of people that are involved in the class. And I think that those guys are all engineering, manufacturing kind of guy than a Twins Cup where they buy a bike from a pretty or the new Yamaha maybe use it and just go race. So I, I think that there's some really wonderful things that could happen in the barrier class as far as involvement. And then obviously for Motor America, as far as people coming to the events, as far as showcasing products that you sell to the street bike guys. So that might really make a nice little place to come and see, you know, performance parts and things like that. But the bagger classes, the scary part about it, Sean, is, is it could be anything someone wants it to be as long as they stick with it. And I think this is where Richard and, um, you know, the guys have to at Motor America have to sit down, Chuck, and, and, the, and the powers that be and sit down and say, OK, how do we keep this class from getting away and just being a dollar class because you don't, you don't want that to happen, but it's, it's really, it's kind of exciting racing. I know people think, Oh, baggers, you know, a bunch of Harley leakers, but I'm telling you, we've worked really, really hard on our bikes to make them do what they do. And they're, they're getting pretty trick. And I think after a couple of seasons of that, Sean, you might really have some exotic material and I just don't want to get it too exotic. I want to keep it close racing and, and at a lower cost. That's my, my, my main goal with the class. I think that's where it would be most successful. So Terry, you, you kind of parted ways a bit with Harley Davidson as far as the dirt track program and stuff goes. Do you, do you still see yourself as a team owner at this point? I mean, you obviously are because of the bagger team, but yeah. and what's your involvement like now with drag racing? Well, we still, Hansen Hines is a, a company that has, you know, 500 employees that manufacture products and we sell stuff to Harley guys and, and sport bike guys, everybody uh, every day. So we're, we're a pretty busy company and we're based in California and the manufacturing side. And then the race shop is in Indianapolis that takes care of all the competition. It's called our, um, uh, our what is it now? It's the, um, anyway, I can't think of it, but it, it, it's, it's our center that does all of the uh, performance and, and uh, racing stuff. So, um, you know, yeah, I am a team owner, Paul, and we still are actively involved in flat track racing. We're the, the connection for Harley Davidson for the XG for the flat track guys. And we sold about 50 bikes that, that actually compete in the production twins class. And uh, Raspoli actually uses one in the super twins class. So, you know, we're involved there. We do drag racing. We're involved with, we have a, a program that's sponsored by Mission uh, Tortillas and, and uh, Mission Foods that Angel Sampe is the rider. And it's a Suzuki based bike that we run all of the NHRA events, in addition to having two Buells that we run with uh, Eddie Craywick and Andrew Hines. So, um, yeah, we're, I'm still a team owner. I'm still involved in racing. And we got involved in the bagger deal to begin with because that's the core of our customers, too, just like Harley. So we want to be there. We want to have our best foot forward. And we still have a relationship with Harley Davidson. We're not the factory team as we were in the past in flat track racing, but there is no factory team any longer. And they decided that they just wanted to do stuff internally and with dealers. And we understood that was more of a budget concern than anything. But, uh, you know, when you see what they're doing now with their bagger program, Paul, that's a really serious effort. I mean, that's the that's the PDC of uh, Harley Davidson. That's the Performance Design Center. That's where their head engineers and their guys are at. And I mean, they've taken that very, very seriously. And you can see that by how good Kyle's bike is. Right. So when you would... When you started Manson Hines, obviously drag racing was your thing. Nowadays, you see, I mean, the drag racing thing compared to like the baggers, for example, the drag racing thing has got to be something that builds your image, but it doesn't necessarily sell parts. But I think the bagger, the bagger racing that we are currently doing, I mean, that's just a direct link to the customer to buy parts for their baggers, right? 
yeah, that's why it makes more sense. And that's why we need to be there because and, and be represented. I mean, we want to make sure that people know that the products that we're making are performance worthy for their bikes. And the drag racing thing, Paul, is kind of interesting because we do sell racing motorcycles and um, motors to a lot of the drag race guys. Uh, a drag race motor is typically $50,000 and a bike is 200,000. So uh, it, and we've sold a number of them. So it is a revenue generator for us as far as, um, you know, top line, but we really want to reach bigger as far as the number of people that we deal with. So that's why we get involved in flat track and also Motor America. Terry, I want to ask you about your product line, you know, during, well, I want to go back at some point and talk about the road racing. Uh, you know, I, I, I told you before the podcast, I've been trying to talk to you since 1991 and Paul keeps blocking me, but, uh, but 1990 is kind of when I want to talk about, but before I get to that, I want to ask you about your product line. Do you currently sell more pipes and products for V twins and cruisers than you do for sport bikes? And has that always been the case? No, uh, we started the business, Paul I was a Suzuki factory rider back in the days. Uh, Mark Barnett was there racing when I was there. Mark Blackwell was actually the, um, the head of marketing there at, uh, at Suzuki. And, you know, I think that was in 1977 is when I came on board. And I was a factory rider for them until I retired in 1988. So I was the guy that took care of drag racing for them. And fortunately for Byron and I, we were able to establish Vance and Hines as the Suzuki place for performance products as they also brought on their GS line because they used us to intro the GS line. That's kind of what they did in the beginning. And back in the day, it was actually a pretty big deal, Sean. I mean, we had television commercials. We were involved in a lot of different things. We were, they were the official uh, motorcycle for NHRA. And I mean, it was actually a really robust program and, and really profitable for Suzuki and really good for Byron and I, because it gave us a direct link to all of the Suzuki dealerships throughout the country. So we sold a lot of parts to all the Suzuki guys, exhaust systems, performance products, ignition things, uh, you know, just different performance parts, pistons, cylinder heads, camshafts, all that kind of stuff. So when that business um, got really raging along, uh, I decided I couldn't race and also run the business. So I stopped racing and started running the business. And when I stopped racing, I picked up the Yamaha program and started running the road race program in the United States. And we were very fortunate. We won Daytona, the first race out of the box with Dave Sadowski yep. in, in 1990. That's the one you're talking about. Yes. Later, a couple of years later, we won with Eddie Lawson at Daytona as well. So we've always had kind of the racing roots and we've always wanted to sell performance parts to the sport bike guys. And we have, but the market just wasn't big enough to be honest, Sean. So we started looking at the V-twin market and in 1995, we started making performance or, you know, exhaust system aftermarket products for Harley Davidson's. Uh, I got involved with a top fuel racing program with a guy named Doug Vansel, and we started racing uh, at all of the uh, AHDR races, which were the Harley Davidson drag racings. And we won the championships and did really well. And then the, the customer base kind of followed us along just like they had in the early years in the 70s. So uh, that's when we really took off. When, when we got into the Harley business, we were probably at about 80, 90 employees, I would say maybe close to 100. And then at our peak, probably in the Harley market, we were near 700. 
So I want to I want to talk about this that when you transitioned to Yamaha because that's when I really started paying attention to you guys in 1990. As you mentioned, that Daytona 200 right out of the gate, and at the time I remember I had signed up for being part of the U.S. team or whatever it was and getting apparel, and I got a flyer from you guys that said Ski smoked him. That was the headline in the newsletter. I still have it, and uh, that whole yellow uh, magenta yellow and black. And I want to ask you, Terry, that was a pretty amazing. Uh, livery for that, especially for that time period. Um, it was very iconic. You guys kept it for quite a while and involved it over the couple, the couple of years there. But how did you, who made the decision to come up with that color scheme? And, you know, it was, it was incredible during that well, time. I, period. I, yeah. It's kind of, kind of interesting when you look back on it, it's like orange pants, you know, it's like, it doesn't look <laughs> very good today, but at the time you wonder why somebody would wear them, you know, but, but Yamaha actually, and all of the manufacturers at the time, Sean, were, very concerned about being too powerful within the AMA. They wanted to take a step back. So Yamaha wanted to have a look like a performance division was doing this, not Yamaha factory, because they didn't want to look like they were trying to dominate the sport. So they wanted a different look. And uh, uh, the graphics guys at our place came up with the look and said, this is something that you might want to consider. And they took it hook, line and sinker and thought it was great. You know, when you look back on it, it was kind of kind of gaudy as far as the magenta and the yellow goes. But like you said, it was very identifiable and it totally said something new. And then they got tired of that after a while and they they went back to the blue, you know. So I think in before we left to go to the Ducati program, I think in maybe 90, what, five or six, maybe they changed seven. They changed back to the blue. So, um, you know, it's just, you know, things come and they go and people have ideas and we built those 600s. You remember those street bikes that we did for Yamaha? I think we sold almost a thousand of those motorcycles, you guys. So it was a really nice thing for Yamaha and a, a good thing for us as well. Yeah, I was going to mention that, Terry. That was a 1992 FCR 600, and there's you still see them every once in a while. Some people keep them in perfect condition, but it was the only year that they had that single headlight on the front, but the special one was that magenta yellow and black that looked just like the super sport bikes. But yeah, 95 is when they changed over to blue, but but in between that time period from that for that basically four-year time period, I mean, you know, you saw uh, Jamie James, Colin Edwards got his start and did every, you know, did it all on those yeah. And those OWO one and black, you had some amazing really riders on that shot. team. I mean, even even in the couple of days years of Suzuki too. I mean, those road racing teams you had had some incredible iconic riders. Wow, well, we did. I mean, you, you start off with Randy Renfro. I know you remember that name. And yes, I mean, Randy was a great kid and a great rider, and it was a pleasure to work with him. But we've had so many. I mean, I mean Troy Bayless and Eddie Lawson and Ski and and Jamie James and Thomas Stevens and. I mean, we've had a number of guys that have ridden our, our um, you know, road race bikes that have been a lot of fun. Some did a little more work than others, like Gobert, but, but uh, you know, it's, a, it's the way it goes sometimes. But I really had a lot of fun. I mean, I, I got developed a really good relationship with Ben Bostrom and Eric. I mean, when we were road racing and Ben was one of my riders the year we won the World Superbike race at Laguna Seca with Anthony and uh, Ben. So, I mean, we had some really good times, a lot of fun. So I need to ask you specifically about David Sadowski, because my backstory is I was living in New Hampshire back then when he kept uh, getting pulled over by the cops in Northampton, New Hampshire. And they said, if you're going to ride that way, why don't you go up to Loudoun and race? And so before we knew it, he was a factory rider for you guys and won that Daytona 200 and 
part part of the fact that he was our local hero is what made me such a fan of, of Vance and Hines in those days. But I have a specific question for you, Terry. So there's a, a bit of folklore or legend about ski. Well, there are many things, but I'm going to be specific about this one thing. And it's the fact that in 1990, I believe it was, he had broken his collarbone. And I re recently wrote a story about how obviously the collarbone is one of the most frequently broken bones for motorcycle road racers or any motorcycle riders since they fall on their shoulder and that happens. But there is there has been a story that Tom Helverson at Yamaha swears by and ski actually crashed after having that collarbone fractured and plated and he literally pounded that plate flat again so he could race true or not true have you heard no, that story? That's, totally, that's totally true I mean that that was ski you know he was totally dedicated to, to his craft we, we've had some wacky things happening you know I mean it's like we've got riders that have crashed and bring their body parts back and show them to us after they've been amputated I mean just crazy stuff the guys that really want to race you know so uh you know it happens and, and ski was one of those guys that was dedicated to his craft for sure <laughs> Terry I think Sean's more than making up for me blocking him 40 years ago or whatever the hell it was <laughs> He's been pent up. And All these questions. Never argue with the guy about anything that has to do with Yamaha because he knows he'll know down to the part number on anything you even bring up. So I'm seeing that. I'm seeing that. The part <laughs> I was talking about uh, when Quarterly lost his finger at Willow Springs, uh, Sean, he brought it to us in a little jar. Uh, like a, a couple of days later and his hand is all in a bandage. He goes, I just want you guys to see what I'm giving up here. You know? So, I mean, it's like, it's pretty funny. We've seen some crazy things happen over the years. You know, and Dale is back in our paddock and I actually talked to him about that very thing at Ridge. Cause we were talking about a bunch of things and he was pointing at me and his course, he's missing his pinky. So I started, started talking to him about that. So that's funny. You bring that up. Yeah, it's we were in the Don Byron was in the dino room and he come be bobbing in the back door and here he's got this finger in a jar. We're like, ugh, that's gross, you know. So he kind of gave you the finger. He did kind of. That's <laughs> right. But I love Dale. Dale was a good guy. He really for his size, Sean. Yeah. He gave you 175%. I mean, seriously, he really did. Well, we used to talk about him as being like, oh man, he's such a big rider, he's huge. Now you see him walking around. I mean, you see guys like Jake Lewis and, you know, Matthew Skultz or certainly Lawrence Baz. I mean, they tower over Dale. Yeah, Dale you got to remember at the time they were all doing Hommel and little guys. You know? right. So, you know, uh, 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 Dale was, was pretty big for his time. Yeah. So, Terry, you touched on it. You've worked with some a, a lot of good road racers, some more difficult than others. I mean, do, can you say that you had a favorite? Oh, that's a tough one, to be honest with you. I mean, oh, it had to be Gilbert. Well, I liked Anthony. I really did, Sean. He was a good kid. He just had some, he had some support group problems and, and yes. he just didn't have any support. But, but I have to tell you, standing at Atlanta, watching Collins slide both ends coming through that last kink onto the straightaway uh, the year that he was kind of at his prime before he went to Europe was really, really exciting. I, and I really liked Colin. I thought he was a good kid. Uh, working with Eddie was almost kind of awe-inspiring for me because, you know, I always thought Eddie was like something, Eddie Lawson, I thought he was something special. But after watching him work at Daytona and win that race, I realized how focused he was. I mean, if you can imagine anybody that's totally dedicated to what they're doing, Eddie was the kind of the pinnacle of that. And Wayne and I talk about, Wayne Rainey and I talk about that a little bit every once in a while. But, but you know, I, I don't know, Paul, I, all of them over the years, it was just, a lot of fun um, working with the Boston boys was always a fun time, but they were always good guys. And uh, uh, it was a pleasure to be around them. And, uh, you know, Ben, Ben, you know, Ben, how Ben is just got such a great attitude and such a great person. 
So I don't know. There's been so many of them that that have been fun, but I, I really kind of enjoy this bagger thing, Paul. It kind of brings back some of that memories. Uh, the two guys I have on the seat right now are excellent guys. I really like them a lot. Gene Bertram kind of brought them both to our team, and uh, Gene used to run my flat track program when we were did, doing the thing with the Harley guys. And when I, we were doing this thing with the baggers, I called him and said, "What do you think of Gene?" He goes, oh, "I have the guy," and uh, he brought Hayden on, and I love Hayden. Hayden's the best. He and, is awesome. And then when we decided we needed a second bike, you know, he, he said that Taylor Knapp was the guy and I, you know, poor Taylor, he crashed uh, Sunday and he felt really bad. I yeah. sent him a text. I said, Hey, please don't feel bad about that. I love the fact that you were being aggressive and that's what it would take at that race to actually be up front. And, you know, he was in fourth when they were coming up to toward the stripe for the first lap. And I was pretty happy. And I thought we were going to actually do pretty decent. I, we didn't have anything for the front two or three, but I think we could have finished third or fourth, but you know, it's one of them things, but, but I, I really like those guys and it's really fun to be involved. Um, and it's kind of interesting too, Sean, you know, when you think about the paddock at, at the motor America races, initially it was more like a, what are these, you know, ugly stepchildren doing in our paddock. And, and now I think they're looking at it a little bit differently because I think it's bringing more people, more eyeballs, more, uh, and hopefully more revenue to the sport. And ultimately, I believe that that will be the main thing. You know? Terry, one of the one of the memories I know you will, you will have and I will have probably forever is John Kaczynski. Is Steve Rapp's Vance and Hines Ducati, oh. which was a very expensive piece of equipment, <laughs> you know, just end over end over end over end, basically on the front straightaway at Road America before you get to turn one and the front end tearing off and the thing just basically disintegrating as a team owner that you just have to be prepared that that can happen. Right. I mean, you just have to realize that at any given time, the much bunch of money that you've spent can just go out the window. Yeah. I, I mean, Paul, at, at, at that time, you know, road racing was a little bit different than it is today. I mean, there was, there was quite a bit more, money and revenue available and equipment and engineers and parts and pieces. So, you know, as a team owner, that is definitely not something you want to see happen. But fortunately, I was connected to the Ducati guys in a very good way. And uh, Claudio Domenicali, who now is the big boss at um, Ducati, was my boss at the time. And fortunately for me, you know, he was taking care of that kind of stuff. So if that happened today and I owned those two Ducatis, I'd probably just quit racing because that's, that's a big loss, Paul. I mean, dollar and cents wise and just, you know, parts and pieces, it was humongous. But, you know, that, that situation was kind of sad. I was really, really unfortunate that it happened because somebody's front brake got clipped. And when they did, it, that's what caused the, the problem. But I think it actually made the center spread of Sports Illustrated that month. And uh, it, it was such a catastrophic, you know, catastrophic crash. But but anyway, yeah, as a team owner, you don't ever want to see that happen, Paul, because that's expensive if you're buying the parts. You know, it's strange that that act that crash is very iconic. And it's funny, it was like years later when there was a similar sort of situation happened at Daytona with Dane Westby and Josh Herring. And that a lot of people think that that's what led to that having a brake lever guard. But man, you think back to that thing between um john and and uh steve rapp and i mean that really it, it's almost like it's surprising that it, the brake lever guard wasn't invented right after that because that I directly agree. caused it 100 you know what's kind of interesting about that crash at daytona that you're talking about with westby and all those guys is that taylor knapp was in that crash i i, I didn't know oh, that i saw some footage some rare footage somewhere i don't even know where and i realized that was taylor on the ground when that crash happened so that was a spectacular get off right there before the beginning of the trial 
So Terry, I want to ask you again, back to kind of around the 90s when you guys were really involved heavily in road racing. And I asked you before about the, the nature of your product and what you've had, you've had. And I think back to with sport bikes, all the development and the innovation that you guys had with with four into one exhaust systems for sport bikes that back then, and even like the fuel packs or whatever, but certainly you guys went into oval pipes and carbon fiber stuff. There was a lot of development on exhaust pipes during that time period that weren't just, you know, uh, welding four smaller pipes into one larger pipe or whatever. Um, you guys really put a lot of R and D into the stuff you create. And it's not just about, uh, well, it helps the bikes breathe and it helps them. It opens them up. So they sound a little, Oh, you know, the head pipe size, the, the way it tapers, the way it, you know, comes together into a collector, the length of it, you know, the sound waves, there's the, the engineering side of that is immense. And, um, you know, we were, we were pretty good at that, Sean, to be honest with you. And I think that's why we sold so many exhaust systems. I mean, we probably sell somewhere around 200,000, 225,000 exhaust systems a year. So when you, when you think about that, that's a lot of exhaust pipes that are going out the door each year. And, uh, um, you know, it, it's because we've got a really good heritage and people trust the brand. Well, Sean, what else do you got? Well, you know, I could, I could keep going and going, but I mean, just the fact that he verified the story about David Sadowski's <laughs> collarbone is enough to, to, to make me nuts. I mean, that's, that's incredible. But, um, you know, I guess here's what I want to ask you, Terry, and, and this is my, my knowledge and understanding of Vance and Heinz. Well, first of all, I want to say about the brand. First of all, I am a huge fan of branding. My background has been in advertising. And it's incredible to me that when I look at your, your logo of Vance and Heinz nowadays, it, it, it's timeless. It, it, it's hard to believe that that logo, the way it is, was developed that long ago. And it looks like it, it's still fresh. Um, do, you, do you get that? Uh, do people tell you that? that, that All the time, that John. All yeah, the it's time. It's incredible. All the time. It's, was that you know, a, a design firm? Or who, how did that come well, about? Let me, give you, let me give you the backstory. So when okay. Byron, and I, Byron and I were working in a company called RC Engineering that was a performance product yes. manufacturer uh, you know, in the early 70s. So when we decided that we were going to start our own business, obviously we came up with the name Vance and Heinz because that's what we called our race bikes or had painted on our race bikes when we were kids. So um, we got going in probably uh, late uh, 78, beginning of 79, as far as getting things going and getting things in order. And we told the Suzuki guys we were going to go off on our own and do our own thing. Well, fortunately for Byron and I, uh, Keith Van Hard, who was the marketing manager at Suzuki for a number of years back in the day, and Gene Trobaugh, who was the president at the time, and Gene's son, Tommy, works at Vance and Hines now. So it's kind of an interesting backstory itself. But Keith went to the advertising guys that they worked with and had one of their designers do a number of Vance and Hines logos and put them on a board that's like, you know, like a piece of plywood, you know, like a size of a piece of plywood, four by eight. And so he puts all these things on this board. And as a gift to Byron and I for starting our own business, he said, hey, we want to help you out and, and help you with a logo. So we've had the guy design some logos for you. He took the paper off of this sheet uh, with probably 50 logos on it. And I looked at it and I got out of my chair and I walked over and I put my finger and I said, this is it. 
and that was it sean and that's been our logo ever since and we get comments all the time where who came up with that how did it come about uh, who had the idea we haven't modified it in 45 years and we haven't touched it in 45 years because it's clean and it's well uh, identified and people see see it and they know who who they're talking about so i don't want to mess with it it's one of them things i'm really proud of and honestly if it weren't for the zuki guys we wouldn't have it that's amazing you know you had mentioned um Gene Burcham, and you, you also mentioned Twins Cup, and I finally had met Gene because he's working with Robem Engineering, as I'm sure you know, and right. I'm like, wow, that is Gene Burcham in our paddock working with Twins Cup riders now. So yeah, Gene's cool. a very interesting guy, Sean. He's, he's very dedicated to racing, and he likes being involved, and he's just a super, super nice guy. And I love working with him because I can trust him, and, and uh, he does everything that needs to be done. And I really, really admire uh, his his dedication to what he's doing, but he does that twin cup thing just to help Hayden out. He really is a big fan of Hayden's and he wants to see Hayden do good. And Hayden is an awesome kid. He, we we yeah. love having him around. We've had him on the podcast. He does some amazing stuff. Hey, Terry, I know we're running out of time, but I, I want to ask you one other question. And it's, it's so I learned after I started paying attention to your road racing in the 90s that you you guys both drag race but there was one thing i can't get straight in my mind and it's the fact that it seemed to me well first of all has anybody ever told you you look like alex van halen no <laughs> oh my god anytime I, see, anytime I see alex playing the drums i think it's terry vance back there uh, that's funny no no fortunately no i don't have enough oh. tats anyway i'm sure that's right but so the, what i really want to say is so you it sounds like you you drag race yourself personally but byron drag raced and i remember distinctly he drag raced uh for yamaha for a little yeah. bit and won some races and then of course matt hines drag raced but did you and byron both drag race in the beginning and then did you stop and byron was we met we were both racing bracket racing at, at lions drag strip in long beach uh, california um you know on the weekends and wednesday nights i mean we're just having fun so um, what happened was, is that my bike was, you know, uh, a pretty decent bike. And then Byron started working on it to make it even better for me. And then I started going pretty good and he stopped riding and I started, kept riding and, uh, and you know, and then kind of on, we went, went to work at RC engineering and, and then started our own company. But Byron was really a good rider when we were kids. And when we were running the Yamaha program, Larry Griffiths came to me and he said, Terry, the marketing guys want us to go drag racing. I said, well, that's no problem. That's right up our alley. So why don't we do it with Byron? So we ended up doing that. And Byron um, built the Yamaha Pro Stock bike and won at Topeka that year at the uh, NHRA Nationals at Topeka. And to this day, it's the only Yamaha that's ever won an NHRA Pro Stock drag race and never has happened again. So and it was the only race that Byron ever won. So it's kind of an interesting thing the way it worked. And they made a poster out of it, and that poster oh, yeah. was on the oh, wall yeah. in my garage too. So, <laughs> yeah, that was back in that orange and magenta thing, you know. And um, it was something that that Larry wanted to do, and Yamaha wanted to do, and we did it. So, um, and it was kind of fun. And it was really not an easy task for Byron to do to to make it competitive with the Suzuki's and the on the Kawasaki's was pretty hard, but he actually got it done. That's cool. <laughs> That's cool, Sean. You done? <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, I'm doing that, that, uh, that Chris Farley thing where I talk to Terry and I go, wow, that's, you were a drag racer. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the coolest part about the drag racing was my fuel bike. I mean, cause that's the one that people remember the most when they see oh, yeah, it. Yeah, that looked like a handful. Iconic. 
So, you know, and we did go 698 to 203 with that thing way back in the early 80s. I mean, that was a long, long time ago. So that's kind of a, actually here in my offices, Paul has seen it, but I've got a nice little poster of it in my conference room. But it's, uh, we had some really, we had a lot of fun. Byron and I had a lot of fun racing and, and growing up in this industry and in, in this business. The motorcycle business has been very kind to uh, both of us and neither one of us have ever felt like we had to go to work. It's always been something we love to do. It's funny about that, G, that I don't know what year it was because I don't know Suzuki's as well, but you talked about the GS and how, you know, you guys, your pipes were kind of in the G for the launch of the GS. The, whatever year that GS 1150 was, that bike literally looks like a drag bike. I mean, it's got a wedge yeah. shape to it. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, of course. They, they came, remember, they had the GS 750. That was the first thing they came out with and they saw that it was going to be very popular. So they came to us and said, hey, we want to go racing. Gene Trobaugh is the guy, the president of Suzuki. And he said, hey, we have a plan. We want to put it in place and we want you guys to be at the head of the spear. So, you know, they laid it out for us. And I mean, sheesh, we were just kids. We were like, heck yeah. And so um, anyway, the GS 1000 was then delivered to us about six more months before it was introduced, the prototypes. And Byron started working on it, turning it into a drag bike. And then after that came the 1100 and then the 1150. Wow. that's So you guys drove product development for Suzuki. Oh, it was, with it your- was good time, Sean. It really was. And, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, we really really had a lot of fun. And, and that was when, you know, the manufacturers were selling more than a million motorcycles in the United States alone. So, I mean, it was a big, big business. And unfortunately it's not that big anymore, but at the time it was kind of the heyday of the deal. You know? Wow. This is so awesome talking to you, Terry. Okay. Well, I'm going to block you for the next 40 years now, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. hey, you guys said it was going to be like 10 minutes. What happened? Well, yeah. I mean, that's how I got you to come on, but you know, I knew it would be uh, if Sean Vice was on there that there's no way it can be less than half an hour. <laughs> uh, it's always fun talking about that stuff, Paul. I, I enjoy it. I mean, you know, I got a chance to talk to Eric at the race over the week at Eric Bostrom and just listening to him talk and the enthusiasm in his voice and stuff. It was, it was nice to see him. And, and I remember how much fun we used to have. So uh, I always loved the Boston boys. They were great guys. Yeah. We well, and I've just to let you know, I've also started a pretty good rumor that you're running a super bike team next year. So there you oh, go. Really? You know, what's funny, Paul, is I actually was thinking about it, to be honest with you, because it's really cool. And I, I think what you guys are doing is awesome. My problem is, is that, you know, we've got our finger in a botch of pies right now. And we're going to have to we're going to have to decide how and what exactly we want to win with and, and try to get that done. So I've got AFT going, I've got flat track going or uh, uh, drag racing going. I got the bagger thing going. You know, we're involved in a lot of stuff and sprint car stuff. We're doing doing a lot of stuff and we we're going to have to focus that a little bit better for next year. But I tell you, Paul, and I mean this sincerely for all you guys at Motor America, it's like, I'm really impressed with you guys. You guys have done a hell of a job. Oh, that's nice. And that's a good place to end this conversation. I, um, I appreciate you joining us. I know Sean did. Sean will be talking about it for the next five years, but um, we'll get you back on again and you can. Yeah. Early next year, we can announce the team and stuff. It'll be perfect. <laughs> I love it. The two teams. You you have more than one semi? You do, right? Yeah, we got about six of them. Well, there you go. You're set. (laughs) Yeah, so that's no problem. Having semis is no problem. Having the team and the engineers and the riders is the hard part. That's true. All right, you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and uh, we'll talk again soon, Terry. All right. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Sean. Thank you.